News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. For the last nine months, we have sought to be measured in our comments as the good of a children's charity has been destroyed by political crossfire. Today, we are taking a stand. Well, that's some big talk there from the now infamous Kielberger brothers. They are back in the news. They are the two founders of We Charity. And finally, after what seemed like a long and torturous you know, journey to get there, they testified in Ottawa yesterday. They talked in front of a parliamentary committee with their lawyer, and they were grilled on the We Charity operations, including and in particularly the cancelled deal to run that federal program for student volunteers that uh, obviously has had so many headlines last year. So let's talk about what happened. Joining us now is Mike LeCouture, our Global National Parliamentary Correspondent. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So how would you sum up their appearance? We saw them last summer, and then we saw them yesterday. What was different this time? They were just a lot more combative. Uh, I mean, I, I think if I had to sum it up, they were not afraid to throw everybody on, under the bus and to spread blame to all parties. Uh, I, I think in the summer you saw them kind of keep their powder dry a little bit on um, shifting blame to, to the Liberal government. Um, and in this one, they were more than happy um, to you know take shots at, at the Trudeau government, uh, saying essentially that the government let the charity take the fall for its political decisions, uh, hammering on their saying, look, it, it was not them who told uh, the former finance minister, Bill Morneau, not to recuse himself. It was not them who told the prime minister not to recuse himself from the, the decision. They were the ones who took that decision. Uh, and they are simply victims in all of this. I mean, they've tried to paint themselves as the victims in all of this uh, for quite some time. Uh, and they can continue to do that, basically saying that this committee is trying to put them on trial in the court of public opinion. Uh, and just the fact that their remarks that were sent by their public relations agent just ahead of them appearing were entitled We Charity Takes a Stand, uh, you, you knew that they would come out swinging, and they definitely did. Um, but again, there were questions about you know, their lobbying and their connections to the government and how uh, it wasn't uh, you know, a, a tendered type of contract. Now, the Kielberger brothers say that they wish it was a tendered contract because then it would have been more open and they wouldn't have been in, this, uh, in the political crosshairs like this. Um, but, you know, to say that they were combat combative was a bit of an understatement. Uh, and I think, um, you know, they're trying to repair their public opinion, their public uh, image. Um, and, and again, saying that mm -hmm. they're being used as pawns in, in all of the politics being brought before this committee for, for three hours yesterday, wow. over three hours, they answered the questions. Uh, but I think... You know, it was a sign that they were dragged kicking and screaming because it took a summons from the committee uh, to bring them before, uh, right. you know, the, the Commons uh, Committee, and they brought their lawyer with them. Okay, so what about, did they talk at all about that, what looks like a kind of a cozy relationship, right, between the brothers, the prime minister, the former finance minister? How much of that came up yesterday? 
Yeah, quite a bit because the conservatives are really trying to hammer the Kielbergers on that and talk about, well, look, how much money did we charity pay out to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's family, namely um, his wife, his mother, and his uh, brother, who have all appeared at We Charity events over the course of a number of years. Um, and really, the conservatives trying to get them to say that number on the record. Uh, it was around $425,000, uh, but that also in, you know, included the expenses, which normally are, are paid for for these types of guests. Interesting, though, um, how the Kilbergers turned it around pretty quickly on a dime uh, in that kind of questioning to also point out that while you know the current prime minister would join some of these We Charity events um, and We Days, that the former prime minister Stephen Harper was often invited, never came up on stage, but that his kids would go to it. And the Kielberger brothers uh, went out of their way to thank former um, the the wife of former uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper for hosting the the after party at Twenty Four Sussex, the official residence of the Prime Minister, for some of these We Day events, saying that she was very Ooh. gracious and made sure that she opened the doors, <laughs> paint the picture that yeah. hey look guys, it wasn't just the liberals that we were tight with. Uh, also saying. Oh, and by the way, um, you know, we're going to be current here. Current leader of the Conservatives, Aaron O'Toole, has been to a number of our We Day events. So, oh, you know, yeah, that's essentially <laughs> saying we're friends with all politicians. Oh boy. So let's not try and paint us uh, as just in bed with the liberals. It, it, and, you know, and Charlie Angus, uh, the, the member for the NDP, who uh, is sort of the pit bull on, on, this, uh, on this committee. Right. He too uh, has been to a number of We Day events, and huh. and they pointed that out as well, uh, <laughs> and basically saying, look, look, all of you around this table, uh, you all have uh, some responsibility here, and even in their opening statement, saying, right. you know, this Canada Student Services grant was cancelled, but in the last year, what have any of you done uh, to try and help students uh, in the meantime? Because wow. that's what we were trying to do. Right. They did not. Pull, you know, pull any punches here. Uh, no kidding. Well, it's fascinating stuff. Mike, thank you. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about vaccine passports, right? This is something that is increasingly discussed out there. The thought is that potentially could be a bit of a golden ticket, right, for people who get the vaccine to protect against COVID-19. In fact, countries are already lining up to woo vaccinated tourists because, you know, maybe they've all got a case of cabin fever from spending a year at home. I know I do. I think lots of other people are raring to go somewhere. So the question has become, should Canada be one of those countries that, that really takes that approach to this? Well, Beth Potter is the president and CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada and joins us now for more on this. Good morning, Beth. Good morning, Simi. We've been hearing a lot about, you know, the tourism industry expecting to be super busy once people start traveling again. Do you think that's going to be the case? I do. Um, in eventually, <laughs> it's going to be a bit of a long road, um, as we know, and uh, you know we're going to definitely see the return of our domestic visitors first and foremost, um, and eventually we'll get those international visitors back visiting this great country of ours. So, when you look around at other countries and what they're doing to attract some of those tourists, do you think a vaccine passport is the way to go? 
Yes, I, I, I wouldn't call it a vaccine passport. That gives it a, a connotation that all of your health information might be included. Um, but proof of vaccine, absolutely, uh, should, should be a common part of your travel documents going forward in Canada should should uh, adopt one. It's interesting that, it, you know, this is being made a big deal of because if you travel internationally, it's not uncommon to be re- required to provide proof of vaccination of all sorts of things. Exactly. And there's so, you know, what that says to us is that there's already a system in place. Um, you know, if you, you know, there are certain destinations in the world that you need to have certain vaccines or shots before you travel there. So there's already a system in place. Let's peg into that um, and use it as a way to uh, include your COVID vaccine. Do you think that process is ongoing? Is that something that the Canadian government is looking at? I think that they are looking at it, um, but certainly in the conversations that we've had uh, both with the Canadian government and also at the global table looking at what other countries are doing around the world, um, this is absolutely uh, something that all governments are looking at. Um, and so, um, you know, we're glad that Canada is, right. is considering it as well. Would you need, do you need this to be done by the governments and Beth, rather than leave it to kind of individual locations and, you know, like for tourist resorts and things to do? Yeah, this is not a burden that you want to put on the business owners. This is something that um, needs to be a part of the travel policy so that we can get our borders open again. Uh, We want to make sure that we create and that Canada is part of a seamless traveler experience for people who are moving around the world. And so they need to know that much like they have to have their passport to travel internationally, having a proof of vaccine uh, is a great way to uh, indicate that they are ready to travel. Not everybody's going to get vaccinated, and so there will be requirements still for people to be tested, um, but the vaccine should certainly be um, a part of those travel documents going forward. Is that a discussion that is underway, you know, with other tourism industry associations from other countries about what that whole process of travel is going to look like? Absolutely. Um, For the past year, I've been sitting um, at the at the global table with the World Travel and Tourism Council um, and the, the members that make up that organization um, all are on the same page. We've been working on the messaging to our individual governments from a united, uh, a united stance um, and, and definitely think that uh, and recommending that, you know, proof of vaccinations, uh, testing and contact tracing um, are the tools that should be used in order to get global travel back again. Right. So you feel there has to be an alternative, right? If somebody doesn't have the vaccination or haven't been able to get it or don't want to get it, that there should be another way for them to show that they're not absolutely. a carrier. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can't limit uh, travel to only people who have been vaccinated. You have to be able to allow anybody and everybody the ability to, vac- to travel. Um, but if you're not vaccinated, then testing and contact tracing is going to have to be a part of uh, a part of the process. So do you think the faster a country nails all this down and gets this done, will, will that be the country, do you think, that more tourists go to? Like people want to feel safe, right, when they travel? 
Exactly. And the one thing about Canada is that we've always had a reputation for being a safe destination. And we've got lots of wide open spaces. And so we are still at the top of people's bucket lists. Um, and so the, the sooner that we can get our systems in place and line them up with what other jurisdictions are doing, the, the sooner that international visitors will come back to Canada. All right, Beth, thanks so much for your time on that this morning. Really appreciate it. Cindy, thanks so much for having me. That's Beth Potter, President and CEO of the Tourism Industry Association, talking about the process by which perhaps people are going to start return traveling. You've heard that phrase, right? Vaccine passport, vaccine passport. And I think it's kind of taken on a life of its own, perhaps unfairly, because as we were just talking about with Beth, listen, if you travel internationally now, you're required to show, if you go to certain countries, proof of vaccination of a number of deaths. There's a travel clinic, for crying out loud, right? You get shots before you go to certain destinations. People do that already. Uh, and you have to show that country that you've been vaccinated when you enter. Uh, a lot of countries require a visa. I know the Canadian passport is very valuable that way and that the number of you know countries where you need a visa is limited, but there are still some. We go through that thing. You have to show them that when you enter. So this is just going to be another uh, little layer in that process. And as Beth pointed out, the faster Canada figures out what we want to do, uh, the potentially the faster the industry will see a return to tourism, uh, certainly domestic. I think tourism is going to be crazy busy this summer, uh, followed by hopefully next year, return in international tourism, but we'll see what happens. Are you ready and anxious to start traveling again? I'm a little worried about international travel at this point, but I think eventually I'll get there, uh, but probably next year, 2022. But how uh, anxious are you to start international travel again? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. You can call our buzz line, 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, people worry about their money in tough economic times. It is only natural. But what many Canadians don't know is that there is a federal institution to protect what you deposit in a bank under certain conditions. So what are those conditions? How do you make sure your money is protected? Well, that's where the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation comes in. And they're on a mission to kind of let people know what it is that they do. CEO Peter Rutledge was able to join us to explain a little more about that. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. I think, you know, in in times like this, people generally get concerned about their money, where their money is. And I'm sure they've seen the sign before that says CDIC. But can you explain to us what is the CDIC? Yeah, thanks, Simi, for having me. Um, CDIC is the Canada Deposit Insurance Corporation. We we insure for Canadians uh, all deposits held at CDIC member institutions. And there's about 85 of them uh, across the country. And they know they're insured if they see a purple sticker with a lock in the center of it on their bank branch door or the same picture on their on their bank's website. Okay, so is it, why is it important to look for that? Uh, it's important just to check to make sure that uh, you know your deposits are protected by CDIC. And so a big part of the service we provide to Canadians is protect their deposits. So if their bank gets in trouble, they don't lose any money. Um, but uh, an important part of that responsibility is to ma- is making sure Canadians know that if if uh, if they bank at a CDIC insured corp- uh, institution, that they know that that's the, the the case. So is that for like all the money that they have on deposit? So does like anybody if you deposit money in a CDIC insured bank, then your money is protected? Yeah, 
So this is for your deposits, uh, not for your mutual funds, not for any stock holdings or bond holdings you might have, but for your, your savings deposits, for your demand uh, deposits. Uh, they're all insured up to $100,000 per institution and across seven categories per institution. So let me explain that. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have, um, uh, say, an RRSP with your bank and a savings account with your bank, you get two $100,000 coverage limits. So you can have up to 100000 in deposits in each account and it'll be fully backed by CDIC. So a lot of people think, oh, well, I only have 100000 covered by CDIC. That, that's not the case. Depending on how you structure your accounts, you can have much more than 100000 in, in coverage. Now, if, if you do have deposits in your RRSP, so for example, a GIC, or Guaranteed Investment Certificate, we do insure that. But if you have a mutual fund, we don't do that. We don't insure that product. Okay, so... Do you get, have there been a lot of questions, you think, during this, like, difficult financial time for people about this? Yeah, um, back when the pandemic started, so March, April, May, all our indicators of concern, so website visits, uh, you know, traffic and and comments on Twitter, um, uh, just general uh, inbound calls to our call center all spiked up into crisis levels. Our red lights were going off. Uh, And folks were worried for a couple of months there. And then as the the fiscal stimulus came into force, as the monetary stimulus from the Bank of Canada came into force, uh, folks started to settle down. We complemented that by uh, quadrupling our presence in in our both uh, mainstream and, and social media. So you would have seen a lot more advertising for CDIC during that period. Right. Um, And that just was to remind folks that we're here, we're protecting your money, and the safest place to leave your money is in a a bank account at a CDIC-insured institution. Now, Peter, is that something that happens, do you think, every time there's kind of financial difficulties, whether it's 2008 or 2020? Well, uh, yes. The, uh, The levels of concern we saw in 2020 mirrored what we saw in 2008. So there are spikes of concern, and they're generally tied to big shocks to the economy. Um, the, you know, the interesting thing is uh, Canada hasn't had a bank failure of any kind in 25 years. And so folks, not intentionally, but because lives, because you know, we have busy lives, you tend to forget that that deposit insurance protection is there when you don't have a bank failure in, in 25 years. Right. So folks, you know, understandably may not Remember, all the time we're there, and we just do do our best to remind folks that we are there. And is that why CDIC was created then? Was there more concern in years past about bank failures? Yeah, back in the mid '60s, there were um, there was a, a few provincial trust companies that that got into trouble, and there was concern that um, uh, troubles at those institutions, or even if those institutions had failed that those failures would then trigger a broader run on deposits across the financial system. So the federal government of the day created CDIC to protect deposits then up to $20,000. And that settled things down in the late 60s. And then we've had periods of financial instability since then. Um, certainly between the late 80s and the mid-90s, we had there's a bunch of uh, credit problems in the banking sector and 
CDIC had uh, probably three quarters of its 43 member institution failures in our history occur during that time frame. Uh, and folks really did know who we were then because we were saving. Right. Uh, saving folks. Right. Um, since that time, you know, we haven't had to. It's been 25 years. We have a pretty solid banking system. So folks kind of forget us. Right. So you need um, to United remind States them. By, yeah, but in the United States, by contrast, their deposit insurance corporation called the FDIC has 80% awareness versus CDIC 60% awareness. Why is that? They've had 500 failures, bank failures since 2008-9. Wow. We've had zero. <laughs> so, you, know, you tend to remember deposit insurance when it's there to, uh, to help you out when you really need it. Right. Well, good uh, reminder for people. Yeah, folks should know we are there. I uh, hope you don't need our, our deposit insurance protection, but if you do, you already have it. All you have to do is look for a purple lock on your bank branch door or on the website. And if you see that, um, you know you're covered up to 100000 across seven different categories. All right. Well, Peter, thanks for your time today. Appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks, Simi. Appreciate taking the time to, to hear me out. This is Mornings with Simi. So one of the keys to really getting this virus under control, clearly vaccinations, right? One of the other pieces of that puzzle could be spending more time outdoors in the summer and warmer weather months. We know the virus is less likely to spread during the warmer weather, but some experts are still cautioning against aggressive reopening plans in in anticipation of that weather. Joining us now is Dr. Sally Otto, a professor in the UBC Department of Zoology. She's voicing some concerns about cutting back the restrictions too quickly. Dr. Otto, thank you for being here. You're welcome. What kind of concerns do you have? Well, you know, there are lots of really good signs. We've got the vaccinations rolling out, the death rates are coming down a little bit, and certainly the number of cases among people 80 and over are declining. My concerns have to do with the numbers of new of the new variant, and that's particularly the B117 variant from the United Kingdom. And over the last um, month, approximately, it's been doubling every week. So yesterday, there were over 800 cumulative cases reported of variants. And that is, the week before, last Monday, it was under 400. And so seeing, it really, it's like one type is doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling. And it, it doesn't matter if the other old variant is staying constant, because it's just not going to take that many more weeks of doubling before the real concern is bending this new curve down represented by B117. Right. And I know that that's, we feel like we've been in a bit of a race, right? To get as many people vaccinated before that variant gets under control. Do you feel that's still a big concern out there? Well, it's like we have a race and a thoroughbred, which is B117, which is transmitting at over 50% a higher rate and there's a higher death rate, um, which has now been confirmed by two different independent studies. So, um, yes, we have a thoroughbred in the race, which is running really fast and doubling, as I said, every week. And we're not vaccinating at a fast enough rate to um, win that race. Now, what um, the death rates I, I, we um, are fortunately coming down, and that puts us in a, in a good position, especially as we vaccinate the older um, population most susceptible to, hosp- to deaths. But I am concerned that the hospitalization rates will rise because of this. 
um, new variant. And of course, hospitalization has affected a large um, fraction of populations, including you know down to the um, youngest ages. So that's my worry: is that we're going to see um, a lot of severe disease and hospitalizations in the in the next few weeks, unless we go back to restrictions once that the cases rise again. It's just going to be harder to keep it down. Right, because like all people heard, I think yesterday was aiming to loosen up some of the restrictions to, so that people could perhaps go to church for Easter. Yeah, you know, the outside, so there's not much evidence of outdoor transmission for either the old variant or this new variant, as far as we know. And so, you know, I think that uh, there can be a smart easing up in certain directions and then restrictions in other directions. And I think that's what I would um, like to see. And so I think the easing up outdoors is actually a, a probably a pretty a good response, even in the light of a new variant. Right. So do you feel it's okay then to push people outdoors and say, listen, if you're going to gather, gather outside? Yes. And I would say even then, um, use your masks unless um, you're eating or something or preventing yourself from using a mask. Keep your distance um, and, you know, pay attention to to, th- to things like, you know, the wind's blowing, probably pretty safe, really still environment where there's a lot of people um, shoulder to shoulder, not safe. Right. Do you think people are getting the message or are they just so tired at this point? Well, we're all, yeah, I'm sure everybody's tired and it's, it's really... Um, just globally so saddening that right when we had the vaccinations rolling out is when this new variant with a substantially higher transmission rate appeared. And it is a devastating piece of news to end 2021. So, yeah, I think I know we're all tired. Um, I do think that the way that the vaccines are coming out um, by the end of July, we'll all be vaccinated. And I do have high hopes for the summer. And I also do think Dr. Henry's approach to vaccinating those most vulnerable, not only the 80 plus, but also farm workers and people that are living in um, um, situations where there's a lot of people um, in the same dorms or in the same rooms. Right. Okay. So the messages are there then, Dr. Otto. Are we close, though? Do you think like how long before you see a, a return to people perhaps not having to worry as much about all this? You know, I think it's, I think honestly, it's going to be July because I think we're going to have a major spike and have to have more restrictions. But then as we get more and more vaccines into us, I, I hope it will relax. Right. Where do you see that major spike happening or when do you see it happening? Well, in, in two weeks, um, the B117 should be um, more than 50% of cases. And, and so it's really in the, in the month or two after that that we're going to see um, the spike. And I, expect increasing restrictions. But that gives us um, a couple of weeks of reprieve, I guess. Right. You think April then is is tough. That's return from spring break, right? That's a a lot of people perhaps doing things that they shouldn't be doing. You know, that's not even included in this. um, The the kind of spike in due to um, bad behaviors. This is just the kind of normally normal doubling due to this variant. Right. So that's that's kind of scary when you put it that way, though. Guess so, you know. But I, honestly, I think a lot of people have been very subdued, and even in their spring break plans, um, a lot of people that I've talked to have stayed close to home and would otherwise be traveling. And so, kudos to everybody out there who's been pitching in. We'll see how it goes, Dr. Otto. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. 
This is Mornings with Simi. We've been working on how we can safely reopen in-person faith services, as I know how challenging it has been for many people not to be able to congregate. That is big, big news from public health officials that we heard yesterday, right? In-person worship services may soon be possible here in BC. And why is that such a big deal? Well, you've got Easter coming up right at the beginning of April. You have Passover starting on March 27th. I mean, there are people who would dearly love to, uh, you know, spend those days in their place of worship. So it's going to be a gradual process to get to that point at first, about, but you know, they are going to get there. So we thought, let's talk about this with the senior rabbi at the Temple Shalom Synagogue, Rabbi Dan Moskowitz, who is with us once again. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Cindy. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So what did you think of the news yesterday? Oh, it was terrific news. Um, I mean, it's a little bit of get ready to get ready, but uh, we've been working with the Provincial Health Office and with Dr. Henry uh, on this for months. They've had wonderful dialogues with clergy across um, the, the province, and uh, they've heard our need and the, the, the expression of the needs of our members uh, to come back together as safely as we can for the, you know, the, the spiritual, emotional support that comes with, uh, with worship. And so uh, they're responding, and, and you know, we're trusting that, they're, that what they're going to come back to us with will be safe, and we'll follow their protocols. At this point, then, how do you envision Passover services unfolding? Well, unfortunately, I think that uh, we, the question, the perennial question, why is this night different from every other night, will not be the question this year, because it'll be just like last year, um, which is that the Passover Seder, for most people, will be just with their bubble in their home and via Zoom. Um, and, but there are some services that take place during Passover on the first and second day and on the, on the last day of Passover on the seventh or eighth day. And those, it sounds like that we'll get some instruction next week that we'll be able to have some kind of gatherings either outdoors or preferably indoor our worship spaces for some small number of people, socially distanced, masks, you know, good ventilation, those kinds of things. Right. So that would apply to any house of worship then. Uh, so would you be able to do that? Or is your congregation yeah. willing to go outdoors for this kind of thing? Yeah, no, we have a beautiful tent in the, in the garden of our, of our synagogue, in the, in the back garden. And uh, we'll use that for sure. If, uh, and we did uh, before the COVID protocols and the weather kind of locked us down. Um, but if we can go back inside, we'll do that as well. Right. What are you hearing from members of your congregation then, uh, Rabbi, about how they're feeling with what has happened? Yeah, I mean, everybody is really exhausted. Um, you know, we all are. And uh, there's a lot of reflection. It's been, a, it's been a year, you know, and you can just say that with an end of sentence right there. Yeah. It's been a year. Um, tremendous growth and resilience. People have found a, a, a wellspring inside themselves that they didn't know they had, I think, like other generations that have come through long, challenging experiences. But at the same time, people are just worn out, and they're missing those connections, and they're looking over the borders and seeing, you know, other other communities starting to come back together. In my community, they're looking to Israel, where people will be having in-person seders. And there's there's a sense, you know, there's jealousy. There's vaccine jealousy going on for sure. But we're being patient. Yeah. How have you managed to, throughout the pandemic, then talk to your congregants about that, about about keeping that faith and about, you know, making sure that you, you still do all the things that you would normally do. You're just not gathering. Right. Well, you know, we, we speak about it all the time. 
almost every sermon I give has some theme of COVID woven in it, even if I'm speaking about a 3,000-year-old text. Um, but, you know, we talk about the blessings in the midst of the, of the curse, right? The, the, the things that we are able to do now, and even some things that we're going to miss when, you know, the, the lockdowns go away. Uh, the ability to be home, to be with our family. Many of my, uh, in my community, you know, they haven't traveled anywhere, and so they're right here with the people that are nearest and dearest to them in their homes, and that's a blessing. So we talk about that. Have you been consulted? Like, have public health officials been talking to you and other groups about how this works? Yes, and they've been wonderful about it. So we've had ongoing dialogues for the past at least two months in, in, in real in earnest. There have been some meetings prior to that with Dr. Robert Dom um, from Simon Fraser's Center for Dialogue. And that's been put together by the province, and they've brought... Uh, dozens and dozens of clergy together, and then we just had a call, I guess it was last week, which seemed to be sort of like a, I don't know, a representative's call, uh, where Dr. Henry uh, was on the call with us, answered our questions, and in fact uh, gave us a heads up that there would be uh, some news coming. Do you think that gathering can be done safely? Well, I'm not a doctor, so... um, you know, I'm trusting the science on this, but I, I think that it can. Um, I know that, um, you know, we are rule followers. I mean, that's kind of what religion is in general. So if you give us protocols, we will adhere to them, and we have a reason to do so. We care deeply about um, the members of our congregation. They're not customers, not that people don't care about customers or anything, but, you know, these right. are members of our extended family. And so no, no clergy person that I know wants to do anything that would put their extended family, uh, their parishioners, if you would, in harm. You mentioned that you, you know, in every sermon you have somehow talked about COVID-19. How have you woven that in? How have you put that in the discussions? Sometimes better than others. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, it just depends on what's going on at the moment. I mean, I've given sermons about whether it's uh, a requirement of, of Jewish law, for example, to take the vaccine. It is for the protection of yourself and the protection of others. Uh, I've talked about how this is not the first time that you know we as a Jewish people have gone through something like this, whether it be pandemic or you know global existential threats. Um, so you look through the lens of history. You you look through the, the today's lines of morals and ethics. And of course, you know, one of the things that religion is so good is ritualizing moments. And so we found rituals for when you get your vaccine, there's a blessing for that. Uh, Putting on the mask, washing your hands, there's blessings for those things, all trying to bring some sense of of, of purpose and meaning to what are becoming, you know, very, very uh, mundane, in some cases, tasks and and life-saving tasks also. You talk about ritualizing moments. I think that's such a good way to put it. Do you think that's what some people are missing? the rituals of, of what they had their life before? Yeah, I mean, I think people are missing a lot of the consistency and the predictability of their life before. For me, you know, Judaism is 3,500-year-old religion, and I feel like I'm reinventing it every day. So I'm missing the old and the familiar. Uh, I want things to go back to the way that they were. I think many of us do, but not all the way back to the way they were. Um, so there's this longing that, that takes place. There's this missing for... Um, you know, that which, which gives us a sense of grounding. Right. So you are grateful for what you heard yesterday, hoping that that will uh, translate to a better spring. Yes. Yes, for sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. 
All right, so maybe you're looking to do a good deed these days, or perhaps you would just like to, you know, get a gift card to a local restaurant. Either way, we've got you covered with this next story. Now, shoreline cleanups have been smaller this year because of the pandemic, and unfortunately, it's actually beginning to show. The latest storms that we've had, all that wind in the last couple of weeks, have kicked up all kinds of junk. But there's an awesome new incentive for people to get out there and pitch in. Joining us now is Jonathan Rowling, who's a great 10 student at Sir Charles uh, Tupper Secondary School and a member of an organization called Youth to See. Jonathan, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. Tell me about Youth to See. Perfect. So Youth to See started in the fall of 2019, and it's a program for 15 to 18-year-old teenagers who want to create a difference in our uh, oceans or wildlife. Okay, so how do you do that? Um, so we actually have several ways of doing it. First off is an ocean service project, which pretty much means uh, our teams will propose an idea to some of our staff to do different projects, such as someone led a clothing swap and someone else led beeswax workshops for their school. Huh. And it's just ways of creating efforts to boost conservation and knowledge in pollution or other factors. Right. Shoreline cleanups are a pretty good idea, though. It's pretty messy out there right now, isn't it? Yeah, it's we're, especially with the recent storms, we're seeing a large amount of debris going onto our shores. So how can the rest of us get involved? How can we help? So if people go to the, clean, uh, or the Great Canadian Shoreline Cleanup website, and you go to Clean Coastal, you guys will be able to actually register for these events. And once you've registered your cleanup, you'll be able to receive your gift cards. Okay. And how did you get these gift cards? I mean, that's not no not an easy task, right? To round up gifts for people to participate in this. Yeah. So we, um, we were given a set budget and then we went to different restaurants and cafes and such and asked if they wanted to participate. And then we double-checked with the Oceanwise Seafood if they're Oceanwise and they provide conservation and we made sure they're local businesses. And through that, we created a list and everyone got about 15 gift cards from each restaurant worth, 15, worth $50. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of how it went. Well, this is pretty nice. So some high school students getting together and you're going to give us something for helping to clean up? I know. it. We find it. It's both... <laughs> We find it both a great way to clean up our oceans while also promoting uh, local businesses. And it's also a great way to get some exercise during the pandemic. It really is. So are there specific beaches and areas that you would like to target here? We would just like to reassure people that to do it in your neighborhood. You don't need to go out to Stanley Park. You don't need to go to one of the beaches. You can do it in your own local park, in your own local stream. Don't go around the city. Just do it in your immediate area. So then how do they show you that they did that in order to, you know, earn themselves a gift card or maybe just do it for the good of it? Yeah. So as I said, if you go to uh, the Great Canadian Trail and Cleanup webpage, you actually will be able to select an option and it's a pamphlet and you put in every number that you have in. So say you collected 50 spoons or plastic straws or something, you'd put in the 50 next to it. And we get that information. And that's actually something called citizen science, Hmm. where you, in doing this, are actually helping scientists find these records and presenting them to lead more conservation stuff for the government or something along those lines. Right. So you're actually tracking the garbage so they can see what it is that people are littering out there. Exactly. 
Oh, this is a fascinating project then. This must be really rewarding for you. It is. We've actually seen quite good numbers from March 1st to March 10th. We saw over, we saw 16 cleanups registered and over 35 kilograms of trash picked up. Okay. So and once again, then, Jonathan, what is the website for people to check out? So it's the greatcanadianshorelinecleanup.ca, and you're able to go to Clean Coastal Eat Local option of it, and you'll be able to register there. Okay, good to know. Is this going to be going on, do you think, for the next couple of months? Is this an ongoing project? So this will be going from March 1st to March 31st. So it's an ongoing project. You guys can register for now. It's a great way to get outside during spring break for families. It's a great way for communities to get exercise. It's a great idea. All right. Sounds like a plan. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. And listen, best of luck with this. Sounds like a great project. That's Jonathan Rowling, who's a grade 10 student at Sir Charles uh, Tupper Secondary School, member of Youth to See. And they've got this great challenge going on. So as teenagers, they've got this organization. They are challenging you, Lower Mainlanders out there, to help them do some cleanup. Whether you do it in a local park or a local beach, perhaps near you, they're saying, go online, go to their website. Uh, They'll explain to you how to do this and show them how you're doing this. And you could score a $50 gift card to a local restaurant. This is Mornings with Simi. All we've been asking for is to just get at least a voice at the table, at least be heard, you know, and the science is on our side. So it just makes no sense. That's Rio Theatre owner Corinne Lee on the Linda Steele Show here on CKNW yesterday. Now, she's been very vocal about the financial struggle for businesses around arts and culture. She feels there's a lack of support there. The province, as we know, is concentrating on opening things up slowly for religious services. But if one Vancouver councillor has her way, Vancouver would be planning for all sorts of arts and culture activities. So let's find out what is going on. Sarah Kirby-Young joined us now, Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Jimmy. Now, you're going to be putting forward a motion to council. Tell me about this. Yeah, I actually brought the motion forward last week. I did an emergency motion, which was outside of our normal procedure where you have to call notice and usually wait a couple of weeks till the next council meeting to be heard, but it was, I was hearing loud and clear from all different sectors of the arts, events, hospitality, and tourism that they needed more information on an opening up plan now. And so I brought the emergency motion to council last week, and council was kind enough to consider it on the spot and passed it. All right, what's it all about? So it's called uh, Opening Up, Enabling Readiness for Post-Pandemic Arts, Events, Hospitality, and Tourism. Uh, there's two components to it. Um, one is to advocate really strongly to the province for a more detailed um, opening up plan that outlines the different phases of when the various sectors can start opening up. So you think about small outdoor events, um, when can theaters open up, um, particularly arts and culture who haven't had as much of a voice and um, at the table, um, and as well as the ability to travel, um, tourism and that, all those things that people have been yearning to come together. So um, it's really asking the mayor to um, call on the premier and the PHO to provide a really specific plan in terms of the sequencing and the projected timing for those opening up phases. The UK has done this um, and provides a, a lot more detail than BC has done at this point. All right. So what do you foresee is happening then? Like how, what kind of a plan would you like to lay out for people? Well, I think people would like to know, and I'll, I'll use the, the second part of the motion um, as an example, and that's really around small um, outdoor events. And originally um, we had heard that those may not be permitted till Q4. And we might be able to have those in Q3 in the summertime now with the vaccination program and how it's rolling out. 
So um, what we'd like to see is um, when can those start up so that uh, arts groups can plan for them. Um, and folks like the City of Vancouver can be ready to ensure that we've got streamlined permitting so that we're not the ones holding it up when people are yearning to come back together. Now, that's a huge issue. Obviously, City of Vancouver, they take a lot of flack for the permitting process there. Is it possible to do that, to say, listen, be on alert for helping businesses get back to opening up as soon as possible? Well, that's one of the reasons I brought the motion and I wanted to flag it as early as possible. And so if you think about our expedited patio program and um, that initiative I brought forward last year, um, the City of Vancouver staff really pivoted and were able to get permits out in 48 hours for those temporary patios. And that required a lot of hands on deck. Um, and so similarly, I'm saying, is there something that we could do to streamline these small events that um, as long as they meet guidelines, for example, that right. they don't need to go through the full um, usual permitting process? Because so, these are going to be small events to start with, obviously, due to limitations on audience size. What do you think could open up sooner rather than later? Like in the first phase of getting things open, for instance, you know, we know the owner of the Rio Theater has been very public about this. Can you see movie theaters opening back up? Uh, I'd, I'd like to see movie theaters. I'd like to see live theaters and arts and culture in general um, really given a focus because they don't have the strong advocacy voices um, and associations that the other sectors do. Um, and I think that those are the things that that's sort of the industry that's been hit and hurt the most is individual artists that aren't working. So yeah, small theaters, I think would be great. Um, we're heading into summertime. We've got beautiful outdoors. So if we could move a lot of those performances outside, um, I think that would help the sector and that would you know give people um, a great reason yeah. to get outside and people are just yearning for that entertainment. Oh, no kidding. They are. That's a good idea though. Like what about the idea of uh, facilitating or creating a fast track process for small concerts outside or musical performances outside? Yeah, exactly. Last summer I went to one that the um, mural festival put on um, just off of main street and they had set up in a parking lot, um, had a great, you know, had a beautiful big mural um, had some outdoor seating well spaced out, no more than 50 people. Stage with some local artists performing. Um, you know, you could get a drink and they'd bring it to you so that people didn't have to move around the site as much. Um, and it was it was fantastic. It was probably the only one live event I was able to do last summer, um, just in that window when events under 50 people were per- permitted. But um, the joy on people's faces of probably the only time that they were able to get out and do something like that during the pandemic was incredible to see. Do you think we can do that in Vancouver? Is there the space to do something like that? Oh, absolutely. There's the space. Um, there's, you know, we've had pop-up plazas that have um, been set up as one of our pandemic responses throughout the different neighborhoods in the city. Those could provide great venues, um, parking lots, I mentioned parks. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity to do that. Okay, so what does that process look like? Do you just have to wait for the province to tell you something now? Well, I think that's that's exactly the, the point of this motion is to get a bit of a sense of saying, look, how likely is it? I mean, everybody recognizes that timing may be subject to change, but people do need to plan um, in terms of you know, bringing performers or trying to put a schedule together. Um, we haven't even had a signal from the province, for example, that, yes, we will have a, a live um, performance season on stage with folks like Ballet BC or the cult able to come back in the fall um, or, you know, been told that, no, that's not likely to happen for the fall. It'll be a, a January start and a, a winter season. So that's that's a pretty big gap, I think, in terms of information right now. So, I mean, we're not talking about having this happen now, but do you think businesses need to plan for this? Absolutely, they need to plan. I mean, if you're if you're Ballet BC and you're putting on a series of performances, you, you want to know, like, am I doing something in the fall or am I doing something, you know, in, at the beginning of 2022? So what more can the city do at this point? Uh, well, I think I think it really helps when the, the city has a voice and brings that forward and amplifies the voice of industry. There's a lot of groups behind this. Um, whether it's the Business Improvement Associations, Tourism Vancouver, you know, Arts and Culture, 
um, through the restaurant group. So um, it really helps to have the council's voice at the table. Um, and also, as I said, getting ready that uh, we can be nimble in, in permitting so that we can support these events when they're allowed to happen. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. No worries. You have a great day. You too. Sarah Kirby Young is a Vancouver City Councillor talking about her motion supported by Vancouver Council that they need a they need a game plan essentially here. And they're calling on the provincial government to be much more specific. So they want the public health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, to really lay out a reopening plan. Not like maybe just give target dates for when Things might be able to reopen, whether it's a, a small concert or a small musical performance, as long as it's outdoors, whether it's a movie theater with it spaced out with reduced seating. They said, you know, business, these businesses, arts and culture businesses just need to know what the potential schedule is so they can plan for that accordingly, right? Uh, maybe they can plan some things for this summer. They just need to know what the potential future looks like.